0: Hi, and welcome to Episode 17 of the Business Divorce Roundtable Podcast. I'm Peter Mahler. If you haven't listened to Episodes 1 through 16 of the podcast, I encourage you to check them out on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You'll find interviews with some very smart people on a variety of business divorce topics, including appraiser Chris Mercer, professors Doug Maul, Benjamin Means, Peter Molk and former Justice of the New York Supreme Court, Carolyn Demarest. In Episode 4, I interviewed LLC guru John Cunningham on avoiding deadlock in LLCs. Deadlock is one of the most common consequences of dissension between 50-50 business co-owners and a source of much litigation. In this Episode 17, I'm staying on the topic of deadlock with my guest, Erica Garay. But instead of avoiding deadlock, we'll be talking about resolving deadlock, specifically by means of arbitration. Erica spent almost 40 years litigating commercial and business disputes, including business divorce cases, before making the jump to full-time arbitrator and mediator with her own firm, Gary ADR Services. I invited Erica onto the podcast after one of her recently published articles in the Nassau Lawyer caught my eye, entitled, Using an Arbitration Clause to Resolve Corporate Deadlock, in which she recommends, including in a shareholders or partnership or LLC agreement, an arbitration provision that empowers an arbitrator essentially to act as a third director to resolve business-related decisions on which the two co-owners are at odds, and in this manner allow the business to go on without things ratcheting up to bigger disputes and litigation or even dissolution. As you'll hear in the interview, I confess some resistance on my part to using a law-trained arbitrator, particularly one who's a stranger to the business, to resolve deadlock over business disputes between co-owners that don't involve legal claims. But I think you'll also hear Erica make a good case for doing so, especially where the co-owners are in disagreement over financial or budget issues that have a basis in objective data, as opposed to strategic business issues. Without further ado, I bring you my interview with Erica Garay. Erica, welcome to the podcast.
1: Great to see you again, Peter.
0: We've known each other for some time. I know you from the time when I think before you turned to mediation and arbitration as a full-time career, you were a litigator, correct? Yes. And you did your fair share of business divorce litigation, as I recall. Yes. And then at some point you decided the heck with that, and you decided to go to greener pastures of, of uh, as a full-time professional mediator and arbitrator. And you've done a fair amount of writing as well, because I notice you, your articles here and there. And one of the articles that I recently saw of yours was one that you published in the Nassau Lawyer. And it was called, is called, Using an Arbitration Clause to Resolve Corporate Deadlock. It's a topic that is you know, near and dear to me because in my business, deadlock is a very common trigger for litigation. In most of the cases I deal with in fact the great majority of the cases I deal with, I'm in court because there is not an arbitration clause on the scene in the LLC agreement or in the operating in the uh, shareholders agreement. So we're in court. What intrigued me about your article is when I think of dead law, I think of it in terms of a dispute over competing business judgments. I don't think of it in terms of claims for breach of fiduciary duty, breach of contract, tortious this, tortious that. I simply think of it as two 50% factions who can't agree on taking the company in a certain direction, buying uh, buying a, a, a new company, selling the company, expanding, things like that, which to me don't implicate legal claims. So that's one of the reasons I was so intrigued by your article. And I'd love to hear your take on the usefulness, the, the effectiveness, and the reasons why people, business owners, should consider including a deadlock as a specific trigger for either mediation or arbitration in their agreements.
1: You know, it's a good point that often people have just honest disagreements in business as to the future of the company, the road the company should go down. And what I've seen in my experience, which is 40 years of practicing law as well as 10 years as a neutral, is that so often those honest disagreements can turn into a toxic situation where the animosity just grows, the company often becomes paralyzed. Bad things can happen be where these owners don't agree on where they should go. And without a deadlock breaking clause, they may find themselves eventually where the situation for the company has gone downhill in court, trying to characterize the issues as cognizable legal claims rather than trying to use the alternative dispute resolution mechanism to resolve that dispute because after all a deadlock even if it's honest business disagreement it can lead to the folks just trying to make the situation cognizable as claims when having an ability to resolve the dispute in a different way, whether it's through mediation, through arbitration, what we call a med-arb clause, which is first mediate, then arbitrate, is just a way to salvage the business, salvage the relationships, and keep the company going.
0: So let's talk about how a, a deadlock situation might end up in an arbitration and we'll talk mediation a little bit later the typical aaa type arbitration clause that i see often will not have a specific reference to deadlock it'll just reference any and all disputes arising out of or in relation to this shareholders agreement or operating agreement and deadlock again in my world a business divorce its significance is primarily as a basis for bringing a corporate or LLC-type dissolution claim, being a legal claim. And, And that's the way it's framed, and even those types of claims, we know from the case law, are within the scope of a standard arbitration clause. Am I right in that context, if that arbitration clause is followed or enforced, The case will come to you, in my example, as a dissolution case. And it'll be your job as an arbitrator, just as it would be the job of a judge, to decide are there legitimate grounds for a finding of dissolution that prevents this business from continuing carrying on its business in in a viable manner. All that being said, that's a legal claim, and I can understand an arbitrator being very well suited to decide that legal claim just as would a judge. But now let's just put it as I sort of alluded to earlier in the context of an arbitration clause that specifically says in the event of deadlock there will be an arbitration in the absence of of legal claims associated with that deadlock how does it get presented to you as an arbitrator and how do you process as an arbitrator a deadlock arbitration where there are no legal claims
1: Well, the demand for arbitration, and the parties can jointly file an arbitration demand. You don't have to have, pick one side or the other, but uh, the arbitration demand itself would just say that the parties have a deadlock. Here's the arbitration clause that allows the appointment of an arbitrator to break that deadlock, and here's what the deadlock is about. It's in ones that have been presented to me, one side who, let's say, was the proponent of a certain course of action could be the claimant and present the demand in that way. In other words, you're not finger pointing and saying the other side breached the agreement. The other side is breaching his fiduciary duties by not agreeing to a certain course of action, but rather saying and laying out what was done to show that you have this deadlock, this disagreement, this you know frozen situation. And asking under the terms of the party's arbitration agreement, or the parties can always agree to a new agreement and agree to present something for a tiebreaker to the uh, arbitrator to break that deadlock. So you don't have the finger pointing in terms of claims and breaches but rather you're setting the table, setting forth, here's what was done to, let's say, the parties can't agree on expansion of the company and set forth the attempts to lay out and seek approval and how there was a deadlock or failure to agree on a particular course of conduct and ask the arbitrator under that arbitration agreement to break the deadlock. One way I have done it is to suggest to counsel because you have that initial preliminary call to address and it understand before you set out the deadlines and see if there's any information they need to exchange, which in a case like for deadlock breaking, it's not the usual discovery because everyone knows the positions. They might have experts and need to exchange expert reports because the experts might testify, but one can envision that the presentation would be different than a typical arbitration and is more along the lines of a board meeting with that arbitrator casting the deciding vote. And, you know, I can go into how you still need to comply with the statutory requirements of an arbitration so that parties are, you know, witnesses are under oath you have exhibits, you have cross-examination, you have a written award, that decision at the end, because all of those things are required by the arbitration statutes, whether federal or state. But the parties and council can get very creative as to how to set that up. And uh, depending on how detailed the clause is, and perhaps some of what you were alluding to is how can the arbitrator decide this honest business dispute, is that the clause itself could say what the arbitrator is to decide or what the arbitrator will hear or provide the mechanisms and flesh it out a bit more. Or in consultation with the arbitrator, you can set that up. An arbitrator could even ask the lawyers to brief the issue of, well, what standard should I apply if the clause is that bare and doesn't say what the backbone is for making those uh, approvals or disapprovals?
0: What you've described, Erica, sounds like an adversarial proceeding, not that different from at least the process that's involved in any typical arbitration where there are claims made by one side against the other. Compare that with a shareholders agreement, for instance, amongst two fifty 50% factions where they anticipate the possibility of deadlock at the board or shareholder level, and they deal with it by saying, in the event of deadlock, we're going to designate this specific person to serve as the deadlock breaking director, let's say. And I've seen those mm-hmm. provisions, and maybe you have two. How would you compare the the benefits of that versus the arbitration clause?
1: Well, if that director is conversant in the business, the industry, the parties, whether that is a person who's only consulted when and gets involved when there is this 50-50 deadlock or participates in all the board meetings and is familiar, maybe the trusted CPA who is there and familiar with with the company. You can see how that would be a useful way to resolve that dispute. You could have issues, of course, that that person may get conflicted or just feel like they're in the middle of things. Sometimes when you write an agreement and 10 years later, that person you named in the agreement isn't the trusted CPA any longer could have retired. The CPA firm might not exist anymore. So you could have issues about finding a replacement for that previous trusted advisor. So certainly using that kind of deadlock breaking technique, naming a person, certainly see it even in simple mergers and acquisitions where the post acquisition adjustments aren't agreed upon and they name a CPA. He's going to decide thumbs up, thumbs down on all those adjustments. So that's a very common way to have as a tool to break the deadlock. Where you have an arbitrator, yes, it is more formal, but that's because the statutes require it. You need to make sure there's due process and you need to make sure witnesses are under oath just because the statute requires it. So it makes it a little different. Yes, it can be a bit more adversarial because people have to be able to cross-examine witnesses. So it is a little different, and that's just the nature of protecting the award because the arbitrator has been appointed pursuant to that clause, and you don't want to have the award challenged and overturned because, hey, the witnesses weren't under oath, and therefore you didn't comply with federal or state arbitration statutes, and you've done all that for nothing. So yeah, you're right. It might be a bit more adversarial, but that's the nature of cross-examination. And it's really the way people choose to do it. I mean, in recent one that I had, although counsel in our initial phone call agreed that they would have cross-examination, they said it wouldn't be adversarial. Once we got to the hearing, it was a bit more adversarial than that. But that's just, I think, the nature of litigators, you know, trying to get their points across and advocating for their clients.
0: So you've had some experience as an arbitrator deciding matters that were brought to you under a specific deadlock trigger built into an arbitration clause? Yes. Can, can you talk about any of those without giving away any names? I, I can talk specifics? in general.
1: I would feel comfortable just being more general about it. Yeah, I'd love to hear. So I recently was appointed an arbitrator. The clause itself named someone else, but for whatever reason, that person wasn't available. And so I got the case through the American Arbitration Association, and we held a three-day arbitration that was agreed upon ahead of time would be in the nature of a a board meeting and yet compliant with the arbitration clause itself. That particular clause set a standard by which the business was supposed to operate. So it was more easy for presentation to me as to when I was supposed to approve a budget or disapprove a budget that was presented, whether it would allow the, the business to operate in that standard was where the money is needed, the investment needed to continue the operation on the standard that the owners had agreed to ahead of time. So that one gave me a standard to apply.
0: Some, some objective criteria that you could look to in coming to your decision whether to approve or not the proposed budget i guess it was. Yeah,
1: this one was a budget yes
0: was it uh, typical in the arbitration in the sense of you know before the hearing there was an exchange of documents demands for discovery um,
1: they those had, types of things they had said that they didn't need to exchange any discovery demands and instead we just had a deadlines for exchanging exhibits witness lists. The parties chose not to have expert witnesses testify, so we didn't have an expert report, although an expert showed up for one side at the arbitration. And we, we actually had opening statements, closing statements. We didn't have briefs. We just did it in that way so we could be as efficient and as expeditious as they needed to have this um, resolved, so that the company could proceed, whether it was with that budget or a different budget or no budget.
0: So, in that case, you were being asked to either approve or disapprove a budget. You were you were not being asked to come up with a different budget, for instance. Correct. Interesting. And although you did, could
1: you could think of a way that if the issue was presented in a different way, an arbitrator could always say to counsel, "Can I hire my own?" expert to assist me in resolving the dispute. Usually the parties go along with what the arbitrator asks. They might dis- say no. If they say no, you can't do it. But if they said yes, you could hire an expert who could advise the arbitrator, especially if you had complex budgeting and cash flow issues. So that's a possibility too.
0: There there are instances in which deadlock is sort of an existential question. The fate of the company, will it survive or not, is is at stake. Someone wants to sell the company. The other side doesn't want to sell the company. Again, it's not necessarily a claim of fiduciary breach or anything like that. It's just different preference for either continuing the business or not.
1: Different visions. And
0: that's not an unusual occurrence and let's say that there was in that shareholders agreement between 250 percent owners an arbitration clause that specified arbitration in the event of deadlock this is all hypothetical of course that matter comes to you as an arbitrator how could you see going about as a law trained arbitrator you know what criteria do you think you might be able to look to, to make a decision like that?
1: No, that's an interesting question. And I think one would go as a transactional lawyer, and you're drafting that clause, you could certainly have a carve out that a deadlock over selling the company is excluded from from that deadlock breaking provision. Or maybe
0: um, triggers a buy-sell process.
1: Correct. And we've certainly all seen arbitrators value interests and set forth those, you know, how how that buy-sell will take place. But what I would do in that circumstance, and as an arbitrator, you take very seriously that people have entrusted you to help resolve this dispute. So if the clause required the arbitration of that, I would look to counsel to give me guidance as to how they think, you know, what, what, what I should either apply, what laws out there, what standard. It's hard to come to it ahead of time. You want that input from the council so that it's the party's process.
0: Did life go on after your decision? Did they, they go merrily on their way?
1: I don't know how merrily or not merrily they've, they've gone in, in that case. And, and that was an interesting case in that they weren't 50-50 owners. One party was a minority owner, but had certain approval rights. And so that party, the the minority owner's approval of that budget was required. And so the, the business would have really been at a, you know, at a wall, unable to proceed without knowing if they had that budget or needed to come up with a different budget so that they could get the approval or have the arbitrator approve it or disapprove it. So, you know, they set up that mechanism with that deadlock. And I've seen other situations, Peter, where parties had deadlock specifically in their clause. And yet when they had the deadlock, ignored That ability to resolve that dispute through arbitration and instead went on the war path of, you know, weeks, months later, and sometimes in a business, even a short period of time can be disastrous to the outcome, um, went down the road of trying to Put the accusations of, you know, this one's overreaching and that one's, you know, uh, not cooperating and turning those honest business disputes. Do I want to have international sales or do I want to expand on that particular location? How many leases should we undertake? By not using that deadlock breaking clause, they marched and presented me eventually with each side had competing demands for arbitration that were over 300, each one was over 300 paragraphs long with 18 claims of breach of fiduciary duties and breach of contract, you name it, it was in there. And we had 11 days of hearings and ended up with me having to decide, did people prove or not prove their claims? Did they prove or not prove damages? and in that particular case, whether a minority member could be expelled if there was a breach of of fiduciary duty. And I look back and say, wonder what would have happened if they had come to an arbitrator a couple of months earlier and presented it as, we can't agree, help us break this deadlock and keep their relationships and keep their uh, business going in a different way. And would that have stop the toxicity and the fighting that you and I have seen in so many cases. And we'll never know, but it's an interesting question that would that have salvaged things?
0: What you've just said, in my mind, I think about mediation as perhaps a more effective way of resolving that type of dispute Mm -hmm. where both sides recognize they're having a problem and that they need some outside help to get them past this deadlock, yet under that there is still a foundation for continuing the business relationship. These are two Mm -hmm. people who want to stay in business together. They need to get over this hump and they need an outside person to help. To me, I'm thinking mediation as where the mediator, and you're going to tell us a little bit more about this, is not the decider, but is there simply to facilitate an agreement that the parties themselves will arrive at as opposed to an arbitrator who after a proceeding that however you want to cut it it's going to be adversarial to some extent someone's going to come out a winner and someone's going to come out a loser and that can often be a you know fatal recipe for you know an ongoing business relationship
1: no it's really uh, a good point and i think that mediation can be a wonderful way to salvage relationships, salvage the business, have a new way, create a new agreement. I mean, there's so many tools one can come up with in a mediation that a court can't.
0: Or an arbitrator.
1: Well, an arbitrator sometimes can because the parties can present things to an arbitrator in a way, and we're mm-hmm. supposed to be fair and and and, and act in, in in that way. So we, an arbitrator is certainly more like, uh, I'll call it litigation light, <laughs> But you're right, in in mediation you can, um, certainly on a theoretical and with parties' cooperation, help them arrive at something that is going to allow them to go forward, whether it's through a buyout, even whether it's no buy-sell, maybe the parties realize they can't establish a dissolution or, and a right of a buyout, but through mediation they can agree on a buyout. The one thing that uh, I have found Stymies things, though, is that when the parties come to a mediation through the court process, through that portal, and they've already, you know, put their claims against each other, and the finger pointing is already in writing in front of the judge. Maybe they've had discovery, maybe not, depending on on how things are at that particular courthouse. So often the lawyers want the mediator to agree with them that they're going to win. And so we're so often looking at those claims and not, as as as, um, as I say, one thing to plead a claim, it's another to prove a claim. Have a case and proving a case are two different things. And the result of proving a case may not be, for example, if there's no buy out and the parties may still be in that same business without a mediation being able to give them an opportunity to create this new remedy. So it's it's kind of interesting because I think sometimes the lawyers are only still looking at their claims, whether it is because they're great advocates, whether they think that's what the client needs or what the client wants them to, to say, what the client needs to hear in their view. But so often I think the lawyers aren't as trained, as, as you were saying in your question to me, to recognize the advantage of using that mediation to facilitate, to help the parties come to that common ground.
0: If you were drafting a shareholders agreement or an operating agreement, um, and you're sitting down with clients who are you know in the bloom of love, of course, because <laughs> it's, 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 it's at the beginning, they actually like each other and they're not thinking about separating or business divorce, God forbid. But you get to the part of the conversation, you have your draft in front of you, and you're explaining to them, here's a dispute resolution provision that I'd like to suggest to you. What are you going to put in there? Are you going to put in mediation prior to arbitration? Are you going to ask them about identifying a specific individual either to serve as a mediator or as a arbitrator? Is there such a thing as binding mediation? Sounds like an oxymoron to me, but I've heard of it and I think I've written about it. What would would your ideal provision, keeping deadlock in mind, what would it look like?
1: I think Having what we call the Mead ARB clause, where mediation is a condition precedent to arbitration, or if you're even going to litigate, not have arbitration, to have that mediation as an opportunity to resolve the disputes outside the Courthouse. One problem I've seen often, and I bet you have too as a litigator, is that the transactional lawyers, when they draft those clauses, or sometimes even when they draft the arbitration clause, they don't. It's not drafted for real life, and the time that it takes to get the mediator appointed or to get the arbitrator appointed, and it expects a schedule that's much uh, faster than can be accommodated in the real world. So I think it's always good for a transactional lawyer drafting the clauses to present those clauses to someone, converse it with arbitration, converse it with mediation, and make sure it's gonna work out. Um, if you're naming a particular person, that's fine. It's no, you know, I, I don't really have a an opinion. <laughs> To share on that, it may be that you name someone and it ends up being not the right person for the particular dispute that you have five years down the road. So you may be better off leaving it because the parties can always agree on a particular person, even if the clause doesn't name a person. You can look at the lists together and come up with one rather than have it appointed by were selected by the, the provider or the court ADR coordinator.
0: And would you also recommend defining deadlock as triggered by certain types of disagreements or or just sort of a generic reference to deadlock?
1: No, that, that that's a good question. And I think it probably let me let me say it this way. I think the draftsman, if if that person or the certainly the folks negotiating the language They know the parties. You may not know who the next generation is who may inherit these agreements, right? So that's something to to keep in mind. But if if you're able to walk it through and talk it through, as you do any part of any agreement and as you said at the beginning you're in like or in love (laughs) it's maybe easier than down the road to agree on those things I think it probably is uh, not a cookie cutter one size fits all you certainly should give maybe the thing is better to think of do you what what are the pluses and minuses of having all deadlocks resolved. Are there some deadlocks that you don't want to have resolved through arbitration? Are there particular ones that would be helpful to do that and to do it in an expedited fashion?
0: Just give a silly example. Two shareholders and they have an office uh, 50-50 and one wants to paint the hallways green, one wants to paint them blue and there's no definition of deadlock in your agreement. I suppose there's a deadlock there. I know it's silly to think they're gonna to go to arbitration over the color of the paint, but it, it just sort of underscores the question in my mind of the necessity or not to really put some definition into what will constitute a deadlock for purposes of triggering an obligation to either mediate or arbitrate, and do you also have to invoke sort of corporate process, does the deadlock have to be evidenced by a formal board vote at a meeting of the board of directors? Or does it have to be triggered or evidenced by a formal shareholders meeting at which there's a resolution proposed and there's a deadlock over, you know, the approval of that resolution? Is this part of what has to be dealt with when you're drafting such a provision? Uh,
1: You know, it, it might have to be thought of. I mean, we've probably both been in situations where we're advising someone as an advocate, that's the litigator, and you realize, hey, wait a second. I don't have, I you know, am I going to be able to establish that there's a 50-50 deadlock? How am I going to do that? Oh, I'm going to create the deadlock by asking for the meeting or noticing a meeting and going through all the uh, requirements of the, the BCL or LLC law to set up the meeting and looking at the agreements and making sure you followed everything because otherwise your strategy isn't going to go very far.
0: If you have a, a broad form arbitration clause, in a shareholders' agreement, and it included deadlock as a trigger event for arbitration. Mm-hmm. So again, when I'm using that term, I'm not even thinking of it in terms of legal claims. Just classic deadlock: two shareholders, two directors, whatever can't agree on a course of on a, on a business decision. If that were presented to an arbitrator, and again, we could make up examples as to what the dispute is: keeping the business, selling the business, refinancing, not refinancing. Opening an overseas branch, not if the arbitrator has a sense that the relationship between the the co-owners is broken irretrievably. Would an arbitrator have the power, as as a remedial matter, to to force a buyout? Would that be in the in their toolkit?
1: Probably, if if the parties didn't have a buy sell or some trigger that allowed the, uh, I you know I, let's assume you had a. 51, 49, and if the 49 wasn't going along, even with the approval rights that it had, the 51 could buy out. I think it's hard to um, impose such absent a statutory election or, or the like. You know, that's where, as you were alluding before, the mediator can help facilitate that
0: discussion. So back to the the drafting table, I know I've seen shareholder agreements, operating agreements, whether or not they have arbitration clauses, I'm not sure, that will provide that in the event of deadlock over specified matters, that would trigger either an optional or a mandatory buy-sell process, which is another way of saying that if someone's going to either put themselves in that position whether it's a voluntary or a mandatory buyout, in my mind, that's because one side at least has already decided it's over. I need to separate from my business partner. And
1: that's similar to some of the statutory rights where you you know, vote against that merger and you get to uh, be bought out if the merger goes through. It's kind of a similar kind of situation and, and you know, an analogous situation only being written on a different shareholder level.
0: I mentioned before um, binding mediation, and that was a, a whole new concept to me until I came across a case that I wrote about on my blog last year. It was a, It was a strange case in which there was this binding mediation provision and I forget it was an operating agreement or a shareholders agreement, and there was a dispute and the parties acted as if they were proceeding under this binding mediation clause, but they didn't ever really formally did so but they did go out and find a third party who acted as a mediator and that mediator came to an ultimate determination which was never even committed to paper apparently it was a verbal ruling I'll call it and then of course they landed in court with one side saying oh no that wasn't a binding mediation that was just you know getting together and talking with this bloke and in the end, I think the judge said, sorry, no, you are bound by that decision by the mediator. And from what I could glean from the decision, it was as informal a process as you could find. I mean, there was nothing about it that resembled an arbitration. Yet, in the end, it was treated the same, given the same legal effect as if it had been a binding arbitration decision following the normal rules of arbitration and due process. And when I read that, I expressed some skepticism in my piece that I that I wrote about that whole process and the idea of binding mediation and also the idea of bringing in, as the binding mediator, someone who knows nothing about your business. So set me straight here. What the heck is binding mediation? How is it different from arbitration? Is it something that you recommend?
1: Well, Let's talk about the differences then. Well, as as you were saying before, a regular mediator, (laughs) your garden variety mediation, the mediator is facilitating the parties finding a resolution, helping them settle their dispute, settle their claims. The mediator doesn't have the authority to impose a resolution on the parties. The mediator is just can be evaluative, can be collaborative. they are all different styles of mediation. In that circumstance, I when I serve as a mediator, where the parties are frozen in their positions, and it, they could be five thousand dollars apart, they could be five million dollars apart. It doesn't matter. Sometimes. The smaller the amount in dispute, <laughs> the more steadfast they are to I'm not paying another penny. And I have often asked the parties, would you like me to make a mediator's proposal? It's not binding on anyone. Just I'm going to consider everything I've heard, remembering that the mediator gets to meet with parties on an ex parte basis, which makes it very different than arbitration because the arbitrators are never allowed to have ex parte communications with a side never. So when the mediator is making a proposal, the parties can consider it and let the mediator know whether they accept it or reject it. And then I would only tell them if both parties have accepted. And sometimes they don't accept my number and they negotiate a few thousand dollars more or negotiate something slightly different, but it helps break that logjam. And that would not be Binding mediation. Binding mediation is more often seen in a collective bargaining agreement where there is that ability to make some kind of imposition and perhaps it's public policy if you're dealing with public unions and government situations like that. The reason, as you said, that binding mediation sounds so much like arbitration because an arbitrator is committing a decision to paper saying, here's how you're going to, you know, who wins, who loses, how much, and in a reasoned award explaining why and how you got there. An arbitrator, as I said at the beginning of our discussion today, has witnesses under oath. There's cross-examination. The arbitrator can ask questions. You know, so those are the due process issues to protect that award. Everyone gets an opportunity to have a say. Where you have this kind of hybrid of a binding mediation you haven't had those protections you don't know what was said in when you're in caucus and in the other room what what did the mediator hear maybe that what the mediator heard wasn't correct maybe i could have had an opportunity to address it if it were a proceeding like in an arbitration so i certainly wouldn't favor in our commercial setting that kind of binding mediation it doesn't sound to me like it's due process or fair.
0: To me, it sounds like a hybrid where you're joining the, the informality of a mediation and the expedited nature of mediation with, however, the binding effect of an arbitration. And I would think that it's best used in, in, in very limited circumstances, what I'll call non-existential circumstances.
1: I would be leery to have my client agree to a binding mediation because of what I said before. I don't know what's being said in that other room. I think there's, there's too many issues with that. I don't, I don't know, you know if a challenge on due process grounds would work because the parties agreed to that crazy process.
0: Well, Erica, it's been a real eye-opening conversation for me. I, I came into this with some degree of skepticism about the use of arbitration, binding arbitration, to resolve classic deadlock between 50-50 factions. So I think I have a better understanding of how it can be used. You've used it, you've actually, as an arbitrator, been involved in cases where a deadlock issue was presented to you. I have to confess, I'm still a little skeptical that that it can be a one-size-fits-all solution particularly when the issues that over which the two 50-50 factions are fighting are ones that either are symptomatic of a total rupture of the relationship between, you know, the co-owners or certainly would lead to it depending on the outcome of the arbitration. But it, it does sound like there is room and reason to include some reason to include deadlock as a trigger event for certainly mediation would agree with you 100% on that. Well, maybe 99%. And and arbitration as well. Although I still think, I I guess my reluctance is still pending on the issue and how much of a pure business judgment it is. I don't know. I still feel like committing that decision to someone who does not have the expertise to understand thoroughly the needs of that business I don't know. It, just, it well, just strikes me as not ideal.
1: Let me give you, a, in, in some in some <laughs> some ways to address your concerns. Because you certainly can always ask for an arbitrator to have certain qualifications. You want them to have experience in a particular industry, a particular business, experience with particular kind of claims, experience with breaking deadlocks. Maybe you want an accountant you can, you know, you have those abilities in choosing an arbitrator as compared to choosing your judge, which we don't get to choose. And the other thing to mention is, think about when you're trying to squeeze that situation into, especially in LLC land, where dissolving is so difficult and the court is deciding, hey, am I going to let these two people be stuck in business together <laughs> forever because they haven't met that threshold? And we've read all read cases where they say, hey, you haven't met that statutory um, uh, threshold to get dissolved, and people are stuck in business together. So I think if you look at the claims in a dissolution point of view, you can see that you're asking that judge or the arbitrator in a similar way. Are we going to be stuck or not stuck? And perhaps breaking the deadlock is a way to put that issue behind and move forward and maybe salvage things whether it's approved or, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down.
0: Well, I'm going to let you have the final word on that, Erica. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking
1: with it's you. It's been fun. Thank you.
0: I hope you enjoyed my interview with Erica. The use of alternative dispute resolution and arbitration, and especially mediation, continues to grow in popularity, including in business divorce cases such as the ones I handle. If any of you have had experiences arbitrating or mediating the deadlock between 50-50 co-owners, I'd love to hear from you. My email is pmahler at farrellfritz.com. Also, don't forget, you can stay current on all things business divorce by following the New York Business Divorce blog. That's nybusinessdivorce.com, where we publish a new in-depth article every week. Till next time, this is Peter Mahler thanking you for listening.